Welcome to Happily Ever After is just the beginning. Keeping your relationship not just together, but happy, and we mean truly happy, is part art and part science. You've come to the right place. Here's your host, Leslie Dorries. You know the drill. It starts once upon a time, and then there's the meet cute, the knight in shining armor slays dragons, climbs towers, defeats all monsters, and the two lovers live happily ever after. Or do they? I've always wanted to check in with Cindy and Charming, Aurora and Philip, Ariel and Eric, et al., and find out how things are going five years and two kids later. Now, I know that I call this show Happily Ever After is just the beginning, but that's precisely the point. The hard stuff comes later, and if you're not prepared, well, hopefully you show up in my or some other professional's office. Now, one of the common themes I get is that it's your job to make your partner happy. And in the immortal words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? Better yet, where did that unworkable idea come from? So to tackle that question and a few related ones, I'm joined by relationship coach, speaker, and the author of Fixing You is Killing Me, A Conscious Roadmap to Knowing When to Save and When to Leave Your Relationship, Stuart Motola. So thank you so much, Stuart, for coming on the show and talking about (laughs) this universal but bizarre concept that it's my job to make my partner happy. Yes. Hi, Leslie. Uh, Nice to be on the show. And you want me to – so, yes. um, That's a big concept (laughs) in my book, first off. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a a journey that I was on for 25 years or more. Um, I met Mm -hmm. my ex-wife when I was 22. And, you know, I have to say, we all become dissolved of that idea that we have to make our partner happy especially when other people come along into the family system and there's uh-huh. other be- people being the little ones. Yes. And so suddenly we have now two people who were trying to potentially make each other happy um, and whether that worked well enough to get them to the parenthood stage, now they're trying to make little people happy. Oh. So I'm chuckling as I say that because often well, partners mean, get demoted. They, they don't have, the obviously, the full attention of one another. But, well, that does, uh, that does make my, it a little challenging, because that's why I talk about you know, little, little babies don't understand, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, so I'm laughing about that one. But for anyone who's just even in a relationship without children, mm-hmm. um, married or not, um, yeah, I mean, let's face it, there's a post-honeymoon phase. What is it, maybe after six months? two years, you know, who knows, maybe for some people it's much longer than that. But that time when you get safe enough uh, to trust your partner enough to actually show the parts that you weren't showing before, um, and we might call them the shadows, the mm-hmm. wounds, I'm safe enough to know that I can actually show you the stuff in me that I might actually be scared of looking at myself, and maybe that's part of it. I'm not looking at myself, so now it's going to come sideways out towards you, and I trust you enough to, that you're not going to walk out the door at the first sign of that. Um, so anyway, I'm almost skipping over the question. Yeah. I'm aware of that. But, 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 you mean, but I'm also but getting to the idea that, 
you know, that's when we get dissolved. That's when that beginning of that illusion gets dissolved. Um, when we start seeing these shadows, hidden parts, etc. But I do think, um, you know, the whole make your partner happy. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the mass media. It's, it's in the commercial industry. For me at 22, I was holding on to all you need is love from the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it took me about 20 years to learn, no, I need trust. Need I need emotional right. safety. I need respect. I need to be seen. I need to be heard. I need a lot more than just love. But, again, all the, all the music I listened to when I was 14, 15, Prince, Madonna, what was Prince's, uh, I Would Die For You. Anyway, mm -hmm. th that's that generation. We can bring it back to the 1850s to the beginning of the Romantic literature period, you know. Well, and, so this and has been going also, on for a while. Well, and I also think that there is a unhealthy focus on happy in and of itself. I mean, this is one of those things where you can't be in a constant state of happy, otherwise that just becomes your new normal and there's no, it's like, then, then it's just another day, then it's just another day at the office. Um, right. this, this, this perpetual search for this elusive thing called happiness, um, and yes, I'm, I think that there are multiple ways to do that, but this idea of I have, you know, and, and me personally, I really wish I was all that powerful. I really wish I had the power to make people happy. <laughs> I've been going around, you know, you know, you know, throwing my fairy dust all over the place. But um, this idea of making your partner happy, I do want to I, I ask a specific question because, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine who was talking about how it's, it's her job to make sure that every, you know, trying to make sure everybody has a wonderful holiday season. I'm going, okay, stop right there because <laughs> you can't. Um, but is, is this an equal opportunity idea about making people happy or is there an expectation that it lands harder on either men or on women or are we all just kind of sucked into this happiness vortex? Um, I think it really depends on the, the, the culture we're living in uh, and the, the paradigms for masculinity and femininity and the expectations of men and women. So in the South, you might have more traditional expectations um, where it's, you know, maybe, I mean, I don't want to say a pre-feminist framework, but there uh -huh. could definitely be more of that clarity of it's the woman's job to, you know, make the home, the man's job to bring in the income. Now, of course, that's not the South, but that paradigm may be more prominent in the South than in the North or the West Coast, you know, or uh -huh. the, you know the West Coast. So obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but when before feminism, w women had a lot of quote-unquote burdens to make the men happy, you know. It wasn't uh -huh. really expected that, and that was, you know, uh, digestively through the kitchen, culinary, um, uh -huh. and, and at some level, yes, take care of your man sexually. Uh -huh. um, but, but I think today, you know, and I don't know when the expression first happened, and it's one of the expressions I have the biggest beef with for men, um, happy wife, happy life. Oh, and I hate that I remember, expression. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. I remember hearing right a police yeah. officer was in the uh, – the grocery line checkout, and he had some kind of almond coconut milk, and he said, "Yeah, she'll love me for this." And I don't—I wasn't inside his head, but mm -hmm. you know, sure, the authentic bringing your partner something they they enjoy, 
versus like, oh, that'll get her off my back for a while. Uh, and so whenever uh -huh. I heard happy wife, happy, happy life, I heard um, often a form of bypassing authentic emotional connection and the form of tolerance, you know, like Interesting. happy wife, happy life. Like it, 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 it's, it's, yeah, it's quite superficial. And yet we could take it to some depth and say, yeah, uh, it's very powerful when a man can can be authentic, generative, loving to his partner, to his wife, of course. Um, so, you know, obviously you could swing any expression two different ways. <laughs> but I do think, you know, whether it lands more on men or women, uh, you know, again, it depends on the, 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 the subculture we're talking about. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, I can speak, you know, primarily from the male perspective, um, what I'm seeing in a lot of my male clients. What I'm seeing a lot is that, have you ever seen the film Fight Club? Yes. Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. There's a uh -huh. classic line in there when they talk about a generation of men raised by women. And that, you know, that's like, what, really post-1950s when boys uh -huh. were not around men in the trades uh, and the crafts or whatever. And so now you had a whole generation, well, multiple generations, of men raised by women. And what was the pattern that happened there often? Um, whether it was a tyrannical mother or whether it was, you know, a generative mother, whatever it was, but there was some version of make mama happy. Right. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, which is to me just kind of that right. happy wife, happy so, life kind of thing. So for a boy to bring that kind of first primal relationship with the feminine into his formative developmental years, he's probably going to go two ways. A lot of times he's going to become, can I curse on this podcast? Yes. Uh, a lot of times he'll become the, the pent-up violent asshole. I ain't making mama mm -hmm. happy, happy. Screw that. You know, so right. we're, I'll just talk about the pendulum swings, and obviously there's shades of gray all in the middle. And then there's the opposite, the nice guy. Uh, Robert Glover's No More Mr. Nice Guy is a phenomenal book that I, that I literally work with men on at times. And that's the guy who, you know, the woman's wondering, like, where's the man in the man? Right. You know, so he's swinging the other way, and maybe he's been perpetrated on by the patriarchy as well with an abusive father or whatnot. And a big thing I work with men in is, um, is assertion versus aggression. Yeah. And it's very eye-opening for a lot of men, like, oh, I can be assertive, and I'm not actually creating the same damage that my father did to me or everybody else. Um, well, and, so and, and I'll just... Go ahead. Go, go ahead. I was just going to zoom back into, you know, the experience of a man where he feels like he has to make his woman happy. Again, uh, a generation of men raised by women, that initial, you know, make mama happy. And so in psychology, you know, they'll call that the mother wound. Um, right. And so does a man bring that into his marriage or not? Does he bring in this? unconscious wiring that says, you know, I got to make her happy. And then he's stuck in a scenario where, um, you know, he's been raised in the man box, which is basically is allowed access to one out of four emotions. So uh -huh. I, I know it's not PC to say retarded, but he's emotionally retarded or emotionally yeah. undeveloped. <laughs> he gets right. access yeah. to anger. 
but he doesn't get access to fear, sadness, and joy. And I just use those four basic emotions just for uh, uh-huh. to be concise. So uh-huh. he's got a – and then this post-feminist woman is, like, wanting emotional availability, emotional connection. She wants him to be relational. So he's trying to please, but yet he doesn't have all the emotional wiring to actually be fully relational and be connected. Uh-huh. And uh, it's often a shit show. So – so we're talking about the problem with this idea of focusing on making somebody else happy. So what, what do people need to do instead? Take I mean, responsibility I like the, for their own happiness, <laughs> which, oh. which on the most basic level means like the minute I'm going to complain to her and say, she ain't doing this, she ain't doing that, she ain't doing that, I just take a pause and I get in touch with the emotion. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm experiencing anger, frustration, irritation. Well, what's underneath that? Oh, there's some sadness. Oh, well, what's underneath that? Oh, I actually feel disrespected because certain things aren't put together in the home that I'd like. Well, okay. In that capacity right there, in that little process, I'm taking some responsibility for my own happiness to be clear about what I want, to clear, be clear about speaking my needs, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm also, you know, if I've had some training, understanding that it's not her job to make me happy. The way I become happy is I get in touch with what's actually happening for me. I take responsibility for it. I decide if it's a battle worth fighting. And I speak my truth lovingly and kindly. Well, and, and, and I want to stand up because women need to be doing that same thing. Um, and I, oh, know yeah. that, oh, yeah. I know that off, offline you and I were talking about Terry Real, and, and I know that one of the things that he talks about is, you know, criticizing and complaining is easy. Making a request for what you want is harder, but it's actually the more functional way to go. It's like, yeah. you know, and because complaining. He says asking, asking for what you want and receiving it is much more vulnerable and thus harder well, than complaining. And, well, and it is because, because, you know, when we're complaining, on some level that's easy, but then the other person doesn't necessarily know what it is that, what the instead is. All we know is I always, this, this isn't yeah, working. Yeah. I always, but, but I always like to say next? it's not about, I'm sorry, we're talking over each other. I, I, I just want to say I, I always say it's not about the dishes. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's about feeling seen, feeling respected feeling like, hey, this is important to me and, you know, tidiness and orderliness, you know, can, can, can we try to meet somewhere on that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So this is Happily Ever After is just the beginning on webtalkradio.net. I'm talking about the unproductive consequences of taking on the job to make your partner happy with relationship coach and author Stuart Motola. And this is Leslie Dorries, and if you've fallen prey to this idea and you're exhausted trying to achieve it, you're not alone, but you can learn to do something else. And if you're interested in finding out how, I invite you to pause and contact me today. You can reach me at Leslie, L-E-S-L-I, at foundationscoachingnc.com. That's F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N-S coaching, and as in Nancy, C as in Charlie.com, or you can call me at area code 919-924-0463. Again, that's 919-924-0463. And I want to get back to this 
to this conversation um, about <laughs> how we get caught up in this focusing on the other person, making their happiness be the be-all and end-all, or they make their happiness be the be-all and end-all for us. So, Stuart, you wrote a post, a recent post for the Good Men Project entitled, Why You Can't Make Her Happy. And you talked a little bit about some of what we've already talked about. Um, and, you, and you did talk about focusing on yourself. So why is this the better way to go? Well, I'd say in a nutshell, um, you just have much more power and much more control and influence over yourself than you do over anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's just, you know, in the, in the most concise manner. And often the projection that we can, I mean, let's face it, the, the idea that we can make somebody else happy um, is quite arrogant when you really think about it. Um, mm-hmm. We can make somebody feel seen. We can make them feel witnessed. We can make them feel connected. But the truth is, until we see, witness, and connect with ourselves, it's really hard to have an external experience of something that you haven't actually experienced internally. And so specifically for men, um, you know, I'm putting out a blog this week where I asked a client of mine, how are you feeling? And he's like, yeah, well, I'm frustrated because of this, this, and this, and this, and this. And he goes off on all the data. I'm like, wait Mm -hmm. a minute, how are you feeling? And it keeps going on the day. I can't tell you the amount of times I see that. And, I'm, and I just pause and I say, let's try this. Are you sad, mad, uh, happy, or, or is it sad, mad, happy, or Joyful. afraid? Yeah, or afraid. Mm-hmm. Well, I, said, I think I said happy. Yeah, <laughs> right. Sad, mad. But the ability to know what's happening within yourself, your emotions, the impact that your partner's having on you, um, all that allows you to be more clear with what you need and what you want in your relationship instead of just, like we were talking before, just complaining. You know, much more powerful to speak really clearly on what you want. Um, And the only way that's going to happen is by focusing on yourself and really knowing who you are. Um, it's astounding the amount of people who are in relationships that don't share the same values. There's a simple, one of my teachers, John Martini, has a simple 13-question uh, that helps clarify your values. It's, it's, it's really powerful. And, uh-huh. I mean, the amount of times I see a man um, in a relationship, and <laughs> relationship's not even one of his three top values. <laughs> Well, yes, and unfortunately, that you know that does tend to become the way things go because you know I think a lot of times relationships are taken for granted. Once you know, it's kind of like, well, well, we've we've kind of committed to each other, so now I don't, there's nothing else to do. I can go, you know, I can go out and do whatever other things that are important in my life. And it's right. like, whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> that relationship is not going to be here when you get back if that's your if that's your attitude. But you were talking about this, this going internal, this, this idea of not talking about the content of, okay, so I got cut off by so-and-so on the highway, and this happened at work, and this is going on at home, which is all content. And you're actually talking about going down into, you're asking somebody, well, what do you feel? 
And a lot of times for both, definitely for a lot of men, and I think even for women, you ask them that question and they don't know what you're talking about. So what's the process to go inside to identify what you're actually feeling? Um, The biggest one is just to pause and take Mm -hmm. a breath. And the breath connects you to your body. And inevitably, the breath takes you below your head. So a lot of times I'll, co- I'll coach clients, I'll say below the neck or below the head. <laughs> um, you know, like, like breathe into your heart, breathe into your mm-hmm. gut. And sometimes I'll say even breathe into your sex organ. Feel those other parts of you. Start giving them attention and energy because they have data for you as well. They have information. And that's a practice. You know, that's not just going to happen overnight for somebody who hasn't. It's just like anything. You know, you go to the gym, you're not going to bench press 250. you got to start at 75 or 100 or whatever. <laughs> so I'll take people into that practice to just develop that muscle of breathing into their heart, their gut, their, you know, their other parts. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just, just having that practice alone will typically help people eventually drop into what the feeling is. Okay, well, what happens to me when I experience that feeling? Oh, well, then we can go into, I want to escape it. I, I hate myself for feeling that. This is how I judge myself. Mm-hmm. Um, now my critic is kicking on, so I'm not just dealing with the anxiety of fear. Well, now I'm also dealing with the, another part of me that's judging me for having the fear. You're a wimp. You're you know, how are you going to make it through the world like this? Um, so a lot of times I'll actually, with clients, I'll lay out different characters right in front of us. Um, what, you know, hey, let's talk to your critic. What does he really want from you? And sometimes I'll even pivot clients in 180s. Like, okay, sit here. Okay, now you're going to be the voice of the critic. Now you're going to be in you. How's it feel to receive that from the critic? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's tons of parts we can talk about. Um, the caretaker well, is a huge one that comes right. into uh you know, that whole make your partner happy. Mm-hmm. So this, this leads to this, this other post that you put on your blog, and you were specifically in this particular post talking about two characters but, uh, that get in the way. But this whole concept of characters, because I know, I mean, I am, I am my, I think most of us are our worst critic. We always, we're, you know, we're always thinking that we're screwing up and, you know, that all these other people are having these wonderful lives and we're just like these worthless people. Unless, of course, you're a narcissist, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about these characters and how they get in the way of this process of, I guess, becoming, becoming our, figuring out who our authentic self even is? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I'm actually looking at that blog post, and, and I have one, and it was written on like a garbage bag handwriting, um, and it says, the caretaker, and you know, sometimes spontaneous, I have to just find whatever I can find to write things down. Um, he takes it all on as a sideways way of keeping everyone safe, most of all himself or herself, using okay. the here here. He wants peace and love at any cost, even if it's the cost of himself. That's very powerful. Um, In the interim, he does exactly that, overburdens himself to the point of absolute burnout and even self-destruction. Instead, he may exercise healthy boundaries, assertion, releasing, letting go, and embodying and being love. And... I think what's fascinating about 
you know, the caretaker is, is usually was a, inherited as a childhood mechanism to be safe. Sure. So in my home specifically, um, you know, I had this, I was kind of the peacemaker. Um, my brother was definitely much more physical. Uh-huh. My dad uh, definitely had a big verbal temper. And I was a sweet, sensitive boy, the younger brother who just wanted peace, wanted everybody to be happy. So I brought that caretaker into my marriage, and it Uh resulted in a book called Fixing You is Killing Me. Um, (laughs) My wife had a lot of chronic illness, and so I had this Romeo Save the Juliet kind of programming, Um, Uh and I thought caretaking was the most authentic form of love until I realized that it was actually killing me. Um, and in the nice guy, one last thing I'll say is in the nice guy programming, you know, the, which has a lot of caretaker energy. So again, a man uh-huh. who's like the nice guy and the woman might be wondering like, where's the man in this guy? Um, uh-huh. Maybe it's the new, maybe it's the new age wimp or whatever. But um, right. one of the things I love that Glover says is he says, the nice guy is actually a manipulative asshole and he doesn't have the guts to ask for what he really wants. So he's just nice trying to please his partner to get the love that he doesn't have the balls to ask for. Wow. That's, and then that's shit far, comes out sideways. Far, on. <laughs> right. And then the problem is, though, all that um, lack of um, assertion builds up and then he freaks out once in a while. And then she's like, what am I married to, Jekyll and Hyde here? Holy shit. And I will say, right. I had well, some of that. You know, I, was, I had superhero and villain. And, well, and my and ex-wife I, would talk to that sometimes. Right. And I'd argue that there are a lot of women out there who, who do their own version of caretaking, over-functioning, that oh, I yeah. have to do this in order to be loved. And so I, we, I, it's you know, funny I you make, say that. <laughs> I'm laughing. Because <laughs> most women see the title and they're like, men do that too? The fixing is killing me. They say men do that too, and and which is you know I mean and 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 the standard thing for women is that they give everything to their partners and then they give everything to their kids and then by the time they get into their late forties, early fifties, they're like screw this, it's all about me, and they throw the nuclear bomb into the relationship and everything. You know, it's like oh my gosh, and so these characters are. And, and the, you said something that was really, really critical, and you talked about your role in the family being the peacemaker and these, and these characters coming online when we're children. And it's yeah. in response to what's happening in our environment. And I, you know, and I have these conversations with my clients all the time. We'd be like, well, of course this is what you do. You learned to do it when you were three, and dang, you're good at it. Yeah. You know, and they look at me like, what are you talking about? And then they can go back and go, just like with you, oh, there was a lot of hostility and whatever, and I just wanted everything to be peaceful, so I figured that was my job. And you probably yeah, got really good at it. Yeah, we, we often hear it called as the maladaptive child. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so those strategies were, and, and part of the reason we uh, um, perpetuate them into adulthood is because they worked fairly good in childhood to keep some uh, equilibrium or status quo. To keep, and they were survival mechanisms. But that's the thing, yep. when our growth hits a point as adults, 
where we know we want more than survival. We want to thrive. We want to be alive. That's when, you know, I'll just say it, the shit comes to the surface and it's like, holy crap, this is not working anymore. I need help. I'm miserable. Well, and it and it's something, and, and this is the thing that, that I think is critically important. Um, one, I'd like, you know, I'm always trying to figure out how to get earlier and earlier into the system, but sometimes this just has to work its way out. But it will come to a head. Something, for most of us, something will trigger it, and it will come to a head. And by the way, guys, that's when things get really scary internally. Um, but that's also when people can break the pattern, right? Yep. I have a lot of, um, I have a chapter in my book that's about the false needs of the child versus the authentic needs of the adult. Okay. And um, I'm just taking a look there. So I just say, you know, or, or the unmet needs of the child avoid uh-huh. self-relationship, whereas the authentic adult cultivates healthy self-relationship. The, from the unmet child's needs comes um, that unmet child seeks to complete another in a relationship. So that goes back to our original theme of making someone else happy. happy. Mm-hmm. Whereas the authentic adult seeks congruence and mutuality in relationship as opposed to and that's completing what it, the other. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's another one of my, you know, line from Jerry Maguire, and you complete me, ah, make me scream. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Uh, you, it, makes, it makes for great movies. It makes for great fantasy. It sells tickets. It sells books. It's big business. I mean, it's escapism, fantasy, but that's the problem. When fantasy is lived in life, it sets us up for the nightmare. And I think that's, I, I love that analogy. I think that's a really true thing. And, you know, I always, I always talk about that really good relationships are boring as all get out to watch. They're not boring to be in, but they don't provide any drama or anything that anybody would want to put on a television screen or in a movie theater. They, they might and not I, make a lot of money. And a, a huge thing I talk about, too, is, and I'm, I spend a lot of time in Spain and I'm actually possibly uh, even um, immigrating there. I'm in the process of applying for citizenship. But I I say that um, in America, we don't have a relational um, culture. You know, we have a transactional culture. Well, yeah, that's, that is true. And I think that's a, that's a source of a lot of challenge. And unfortunately, I think that's going to be a topic for another day. But can you right. share where people can find in, more information about you, your book, how to learn more sure, about Sure, sure. I mean, this? simply put, my website, stuartmatola.com, and that's S-T-U-A-R-T-M-O-T-O-L-A.com. I'm focusing mostly on helping men who are on the brink of divorce transform mm-hmm. uh, or move from crisis to transformation. And so a lot of times I'll talk to those men about, hey, do you want to cope and just kind of get through, or do you want to really use this as an opportunity um, to transform the rest of your life? And um, a great place to see, get really in-depth on my work is my blog link. Um, I do have a book link on the site as well. So, 
Well, terrific. Speak to that. So the, the truth of the matter is, is that if you really want to have a happy relationship, you need to put your own oxygen mask on first. You have to fill up your tank, and this requires showing up in an authentic way and requiring your partner to do the same. And it doesn't mean you won't face challenges, because guess what, guys? That's part of life. But what it does mean is that you will show up stronger. And quite frankly, if you need help to do that, you're not alone because most people do. But the successful ones actually get that help. So hopefully this has been a good program for you to listen to and you, that you've learned a lot and maybe you'll reach out. And until next week, stay loving. <laughs>